Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, we continue our series today, Lifestyle of the Gospel, our study of the book of Romans. Well, let's turn in our Bibles now to Romans chapter 15, verses 5 to 13, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message entitled, With One Voice. hard to read the book of Romans without getting the idea that the relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians, well, that's not simply a minor concern for Paul. I mean, he speaks of it constantly. From the very beginnings of the book of Romans, he has been concerned to convince both Jews and Gentiles that both of them are equally sinful and equally condemned before God's bar of justice. He's at pains to explain how both Jew and Gentile are equally saved by the grace of God through the substitutionary death of Christ applied to both Jew and Gentile by faith and by faith alone. Now, clearly, nowhere is this concern about Jewish-Gentile relationships more clearly seen than when we come to Romans chapters 10 and 11. I mean, there Paul writes that it is his heart's desire that the Jewish people might be saved. But in chapter 11, he's also very clear. He, he wants to let the Gentiles know that it was because of the Jewish rebellion against their Messiah that the saving message of Jesus has been brought to the Gentiles. I mean, in short, you Gentiles are in a debt to Israel even in her rebellion. And it's for that reason that for Paul, the relationship between Jewish and Gentile Christians was always uppermost in his mind. And so when we come to Romans 15, verse 5, we should know exactly what he's talking about. See, there he writes, May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, you're going to miss the entire meaning of that text if, if you don't understand the harmony that Paul had in mind. See, he's not just speaking about unity in the church. I mean, he's speaking about the harmony between Jew and Gentile. May the God of endurance grant that Jewish and Gentile Christians live in such harmony with each other so that with one voice they may glorify God. See, that's the great apostle's prayer. Now, before we examine this text in detail, I, I can't help but wonder what the Apostle Paul might have said if, if he were to have witnessed the hatred that has been expressed toward the Jews from a Gentile church in the years after he passed away. Now, before I launch into a tirade against the medieval church, let me moderate what I'm about to say. Anti-Semitism is not confined to the church. The Roman historian Tacitus, who lived in the first century, called the Jewish people base and detestable. So also did the Roman poet Juvenal. Many other Romans and Greeks felt the same way. And incidentally, most of the ancient historians and philosophers had very similar things to say about the Christian church as well. I also want you to note that the critics of the New Testament are wrong. The New Testament is not an anti-Semitic document. In proclaiming Jews accountable before God, it is at pains to proclaim that all Gentiles are equally accountable before God. The New Testament does not proclaim Jews as more sinful, but rather as equally sinful to the Gentiles. And that, might I add, is completely in line with the Old Testament as well. But that notwithstanding, something very evil began to develop in the church. 
The church, through a series of historical events, became the religion of power, first in the Roman Empire and then in the medieval European world. You know, in the Middle Ages, at the urging of corrupt popes and and bishops and priests, Jews were excluded from certain trades and were constantly characterized as greedy, not to be trusted. And I hasten to add that this was the product of a powerful church infrastructure that had itself ceased to be Christian. It had denied the gospel and constructed so many doctrines that were directly antithetical to Scripture. And in the mad rush to extend its power, the church became, rather than indebted to the Jewish people, the persecutor of the Jewish people. And to this day, genuine Christians who know they owe to the Jewish people an eternal debt of gratitude, we still have explaining to do. You know, one of the things that has made Jewish people so resistant to hearing the gospel is the very real experience in history of the attempts to forcibly convert them. But getting back to Romans, if we agree with Paul that being Jewish doesn't save, are we not again subjecting the Jews to the same savage persecution they endured in the past when we attempted to evangelize them? But all of this might have been avoided if the church had remained committed to the gospel. Instead of demanding the Jews abandon the uniqueness of their Jewishness, Gentile Christians should have remembered that abandoning Jewishness was never demanded of the Jews in the New Testament. Remember the background of Romans. The Jews had been expelled from Rome during the time of Claudius. And so all Jewish Christians, along with non-Christian Jews, left the city. And consequently, the church in Rome was then comprised of Gentiles only. And so then new all-Gentile leadership emerged. But then, when the Jews were allowed back, the the task of reintegrating these two groups must have been very difficult. It was probably painful for Jewish Christians to realize that through no fault of their own, nor for that matter of their Gentile brothers and sisters, but all leadership in the Roman church was now in Gentile Christian hands. In Romans 15 verse 5, Paul offers his hope and his desire for a church that was again made up of Jews and Gentiles. May the God of endurance and encouragement, he writes. When he speaks of endurance, he's speaking of that gift from God, a a gift that would allow for Christians to bear with one another, to make allowances for one another for the long term, through, through thick and thin. And when he speaks of encouragement, He speaks of those passages in the scripture that that offer encouragement to both groups of believers. And so in Romans 15 verse 5, Paul wants Jews and Gentiles to endure in a relationship that he knows is going to require of them that they make allowances for the differences that exist between them. And as I've said before, the application to our day is an easy application indeed. You know, in our culture in which more and more people are one to Christ from from a variety of cultural backgrounds, we do well to heed this same warning. Let's stop making rules out of things that are not demanded of us in Scripture. Let's put up with the very real cultural differences among us, as well as the very real individual differences of conscience. Here's an example. One person is a teetotaler and another drinks some wine. Let us agree together that intoxication is a sin, but let us also agree together not to divide on issues around which the Bible would never divide us. But even though I see the contemporary application of this text, you know, it's important not to allow ourselves too much latitude in our application 
so that we forget what Paul's up to. The God of endurance is the God who would allow Jewish and Gentile Christians to endure each other. As the Bible, the encouragement is a Bible for both groups. Now, says Paul, with that as a background, I want Jews and Gentiles together with one voice in complete unity, glorify God. Showcase how great God is by the unity you have with each other. Let there be no division. Let your unity be known to all. And that's Paul's great concern. And that is also God's desire for his church. God wants a church where the differences of cultural practices among us do not separate us from one another. And that's the basis of the rest of our passage. So I'm reading Romans 15, 7 to 13. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy, as it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. (laughs) I wonder how often when we think of glorifying God, we think of doing so alone. We think of our own obedience, our own willingness to allow no besetting sins our own willingness to grow in faith. We we think of integrity on the workplace and how important it is for us to share our faith. And have you noticed how blind we are to the teaching of Scripture? We're blinded by our culture. You see, our culture, the one you and I were raised in, is, is individualistic. That's why so many of us have not noticed that we glorify God when we do it with one voice. When people who don't naturally fit together now fit together in Jesus, that's how we glorify God, with one voice. We're praying that 2022 would be a year that you'd experience the fellowship of the Lord like no other. We believe earnestly to do this means to commit ourselves to prayer and to the reading and study of God's Word. So we want to encourage you to make a commitment to read through the Bible this year. There are so many resources available that can assist you in achieving this goal, including Dr. John's reading plan, available at backtothebible.ca or printed in our bi-monthly Truth in Life magazine, and it's free just for your asking. Whatever resource you choose, your commitment to reading the Bible every day will allow you the opportunity to know the God of the Bible as never before. For more information about Back to the Bible Canada, its resources, or to support this ministry, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Verse 7 begins with the words, welcome one another. Jews and Gentiles are to find delight in each other. But then Paul adds the words, as Christ has welcomed you. And in the rest of our text, he wants us to know just how Christ has welcomed both Jews and Gentiles. So let's look carefully now at verse 8. 
For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs. So I want you to first to notice the words, to show God's truthfulness. Now, that's a very difficult phrase to translate. Another translation renders that same passage on behalf of God's truth. So think of it this way. Christ, or the Messiah, became a servant to the Jews on behalf of God's truth. And then the truth that Paul has in mind is the truth of the promises that were made to the patriarchs, or the promises that were made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, immediately we should ask, well, what promises did God make to the patriarchs? And of course, the answer to that is tied up in the Abrahamic covenant. See, God chose Abraham from among all the people of the earth and promised him that he, Abraham, would become a great nation. And that's who the Jewish people are. They're the descendants of Abraham. And later in Genesis 49, God promised Jacob that from the line of his sons, that is, that one son Judah, the Messiah would come. He would rule Israel. He would rule the the nations. Israel would be the special people of God. God would cleanse them from their sins, and they would be eternally his. And furthermore, God said that the promises would never fail, that he would fulfill all that he had promised to Israel. And so when Christ came, or when the Messiah, that is, when Jesus came, he came in fulfillment of the ancient promises that were made to Israel. Jesus is the long-expected Jewish Messiah. Here's a secret. Even though the First Testament had promised that the Gentiles would be included, the Old Testament never once contained a covenant with the Gentiles. The Gentiles remained without a covenant. That's why it's no surprise that Jesus is Israel's Messiah. And then notice later in verse 9, after we're told that the Messiah came to be the servant of the Jews, Paul then adds, that he did that, in verse 9, in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. That is, they might glorify God for his mercy to them. See, the wondrous truth of the gospel is that amazingly, (laughs) amazingly, the Gentiles are included in the covenant of the Messiah. So that now, for the very first time, the Gentiles along with Israel have a saving covenant. And then the rest of the passage, Paul quotes four passages from the first or the Old Testament. Now, now here is where I, I personally become fascinated with what Paul is doing. See, it was common for the Jews to divide the Old Testament into three sections, the Law, the Prophets, and the Writings. And in the four quotations in this section, One comes from the law, one from the prophets, and two from the writings. See, Paul is trying to make the point for the Jewish believers who might be tempted to finally be done with the Gentiles that the inclusion of both Jews and Gentiles into one church, that's covered in the totality of the Old Testament. So let's take each one of Paul's quotes in order. And as we read each quote, let's remember why Paul is quoting these texts. See, Paul wants to say that that while it is true that God only made a covenant with the Jews, and yet, over and over again, God had promised that what he was doing among the people of Israel had global ramifications. So let's go to Paul's first quotation. It comes from 2 Samuel chapter 22. You know, that chapter in our Bible is a record of David's song of deliverance. It says, after God had delivered him first from the hand of Saul and then also from the hand of all of his enemies. Now, in that text, David tells of a time when it seemed to him 
like the cords of Sheol had entangled him. He, he was going down. And then in his desperation, he cried out to the Lord. And, and then he says God delivered him. And from that experience of being delivered from death, David knew that God had chosen him. He knew that he was destined to rule the nations and that foreigners would one day come and cringe before him. That is, David's throne would utterly conquer the Gentile world. That's what that chapter is all about. But then comes verse 50, where David writes, For this I will praise you, O Lord, among the nations. That is, David would declare God's greatness and praise among the Gentiles. Now, that's key. That's messianic. David's throne is a foreshadowing of Messiah's throne. Messiah's kingdom will one day rule the earth. And as 2 Samuel declares, when the Messiah's kingdom reigns, the greatness of Israel's God will be heard among the Gentiles. Now to the second quote, and it's found in Romans 15 verse 10, and it's a quote from Deuteronomy 32 verse 43. And if you're keeping track, you might find that quote a bit strange, and it's because when Paul is quoting from the Old Testament, he's actually quoting from what has been called the Septuagint. See, the Septuagint is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament. And in the Hebrew Old Testament, Deuteronomy 32 verse 34 reads, Rejoice with him, O heavens. But then in Paul's quote from the Septuagint, it reads, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. You see, in the original, the heavens are called upon to rejoice, but in the Greek translation, the Gentiles are called upon to rejoice with Israel. But I hope you see that that the Septuagint is right, that when the heavens rejoice, it has to include the Gentiles along with Israel. Now, the question, how does that happen? Well, the answer is, it happens in Jesus. Now, the third quote. This one from Psalm 117, verse 1, and and that psalm is a very short psalm indeed. It simply begins with the words, Praise the Lord, all you nations. Extol him, all peoples. Now, we, we have heard words like that before in the psalms. I mean, those are familiar words. They kind of ring in our ears. You see, what God did in Israel should make the nation sit up and take note and give glory to God. And finally, the last quote, and that one comes from Isaiah 11, verse 10. And if you're familiar with Isaiah, you'll know that it's a messianic chapter. Verse 1 of that chapter begins with the words, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, that's a prediction or a prophecy about future events. Isaiah speaks about Jesse, and that is the kingdom of David. You're going to remember that David was the son of Jesse. But, says Isaiah, David's kingdom will one day be reduced to a stump. It will be like a tree that has been chopped down. The kingdom of David, says Isaiah, is going to fall. But just like we sometimes see in nature, a shoot grows out of the stump of a tree. That, says Isaiah, is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. After David's kingdom is destroyed, a shoot will rise out of it. A descendant of David will arise. He will be the Messiah, and he will rule the earth. That's Isaiah chapter 11. But Paul, in making that point, that the Gentiles and the Jews become one people, quotes from Isaiah 11, verse 10. In that day, this is from Isaiah, in that day, the root of Jesse, who stands as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place will be glorious. In other words, when the Messiah comes, he will attract great interest, not just for Israel, 
but for the Gentiles, because the Gentiles are going to come running over and to find out that this Messiah is their king as well, and it's going to be glorious, says Isaiah. Now, says Paul in Romans 15, that's the message we find in all of the Old Testament. And then since that is the biblical message, Paul adds this final thought. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Let me translate that verse. May the God of the hope of the Jews, the God of the hope of the Gentiles, fill the Jews and the Gentiles together, united, glorifying God with one voice, not with two voices. May this God give you peace between Jew and Gentile as you together believe in that one and same God so that in the power of the gospel you may abound in hope. And that's why it is that Jews and Gentiles are to make room for each other and to make allowances for each other. Don't you see, Christian church, that when we don't make room for our differences, we're denying the very nature of Scripture itself. The very nature of our redemption means that people of vastly different cultures and customs find their home together in one church. That's what it means to glorify God in the world today. That's why knowing the differences between essentials and non-essentials is at the very heart of what it means to be faithful to God. John, one of the biggest issues of the church, I think, even today, is that we don't speak with one voice. There's so many splinters in the church. Yeah, I mean, the history of racism in the church, I mean, we talk about Jewish-Gentile relationships, and those were significant in the early church. Uh, But, you know, it's interesting. You read Acts 13, and when you look at that, you know, the church that was there and you read the names of the leaders of that church, I, they, they were made up of all these different cultural groups. And, and that's a mandate for us today that uh, we look for ways in which we allow the church in any given location to be representative of the people who are there so that we do actually have one voice from all the different cultures. Thanks so much, John, and thanks for another great message today. And remember to join us again next week as we continue our series, Lifestyle of the Gospel, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. As we enter a new year, we want to begin by expressing our sincere gratitude to all those who so graciously supported Back to the Bible Canada's year-end ministry campaign. Your gift in December was critical to launching the ministry into the new year, sustaining our Bible teaching resources, and providing a springboard for new and innovative opportunities. So on behalf of Dr. John Newfeld, Phil Calloway, In Doubt, and the entire Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, thank you. What you do is essential to the mission of this organization, and we're blessed beyond words for your generosity. As we enter a new year, please continue to pray for this ministry. And if Back to the Bible Canada is an important part of your spiritual walk with Jesus, and you believe in the mission of Bible teaching, please consider continuing your financial support or becoming a monthly partner. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.